why we do our Baptist Catechism. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. And the question is number 46. The question is this. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? And if you would, read the answer along with me. The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. Again, these Baptist Catechism questions are super helpful uh, for us as we learn, as we study, as we understand good doctrine, the doctrine that we believe. Uh, these are very helpful. Refer to these as often as you would like, uh, along with the passages that go with them uh, through the app and through um, the digital hymnal that is sent out every week. So, with that being said, our text today is Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And as we have been doing, we're going to just dive into this whole chapter, and we're going to start off by reading it together. I believe it's on the screen for us. Yes, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 says this. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For, who, for he who does whatever he pleases... Excuse me, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whatever, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will sickness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. Against the evil deed was not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be done to those who fear God because they fear Him. Excuse me. I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out. Excuse me, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we continue our study through Ecclesiastes, as we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We know that, that Ecclesiastes, like 
everything that is written in your uh, holy scriptures, Lord, uh, is profitable for us, is good for us, is something that we can uh, can read and be blessed by and learn from, uh, or be convicted of our sin, be encouraged in our hope in Christ, Lord. And we know that the same is true for what we read here in Ecclesiastes chapter eight. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what it is that you would have us to see here in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 of how we should live, how we can best glorify and honor you in our lives here on earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we come to the end of this chapter of the book, or excuse me, to this chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, we're beginning to see kind of a, a theme that the preacher is doing in this part of Ecclesiastes, kind of the uh, last chapter, this chapter, the next chapter, we're seeing in Ecclesiastes this sort of a theme where it seems like the, the preacher now has shifted gears and is almost kind of like grabbing pieces of wisdom uh, to throw at us. He's kind of saying, okay, I'm going to talk about this for a little bit, and now I'm going to talk about this. And it almost seems like he's choosing topics at random to, to give to us for, for wisdom, for our learning. Now, we know that uh, he is certainly doing this at the leading of the Holy Spirit. We recognize that. Uh, but in chapters 7 through 11, he almost seems to jump like from one topic to another. These words of wisdom being almost like at random, like, like thrown at us. It's, it's, it's all good. It's all profitable. It's all uh, what we would expect from, uh, from Scripture. But it's almost like, almost like those, or, or something really endearing, or you're my valentine, or you're sweet like this candy, or whatever it is they say. And, and you know, it's kind of like that with with. Ecclesiastes here in chapter 8, really 7 through 11, we don't really know what the preacher is going to talk about next. And he seems to just say, okay, here's something you need to know. Here's something else you need to know. Here's something else you need to know. All of which does uh, point us back to Christ and all of which does flow out of uh, a common theme that, that we've already talked about a little bit, the fear of God. But I've titled this sermon, it's actually a quote from the text. Uh, the title for the sermon today is, Yet I Know That It Will Be Well. And I've titled it this way uh, because what we see through our text is we see, uh, again, this recurring theme of the fear of God. And if you were here a couple weeks ago uh, when I preached on chapter 5, we saw in that chapter, and we see throughout the book, that this is a common theme of the preacher as he, as he is writing Ecclesiastes, as he's preaching to us. It's a common theme that he gives us. Um, and today what we're going to see is that the principles that we, that we can glean here from Ecclesiastes chapter 8 do indeed flow from a proper fear of God. They flow out of a heart that properly fears uh, the God that is in heaven, the, the one true God. So our task today as we, as we see these words of wisdom in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 uh, is to, to find how we can soak up the wisdom that is given and how we can apply it to our lives uh, and how we can as Christians appropriately behave as those who, who fear God. And as we begin in verses 2 through 9, we see right off the bat this, this theme in verses 2 through 9 uh, of obedience authorities. And my point number one is that those who fear God obey earthly rulers. We see the writer of Ecclesiastes referring to specifically to how you should obey the king, how you should handle it when the king commands something, how you should handle yourselves in the presence 
of the king, how you should submit to this authority of the king. And we see right off the bat in verse 2, he tells us the reason why we should be obeying earthly authorities. Look in verse 2. He says this, I say, keep the king's commands, command because, why? Because of God's oath to him. Right off the bat, we see this, this appeal to a higher authority as to why we should obey the authorities that we have over us. The reason that we are called here in Ecclesiastes to obey the authorities that are over us is not because uh, they are perfect. We are not called to obey earthly authorities because they are just absolutely the smartest among us, those who never do wrong, listen to them because they are perfect. Nor are we to listen to them because we as mere citizens are incapable of wisdom, are incapable of doing right, are, are stupid, or anything like that. The reason that we are called to obey earthly authorities, to obey, in this case he's talking about the king, but for us our, our authorities, our rulers, our government, is because those authorities have been placed there by God according to his will. And he has commanded us to obey them. Notice the appeal that he, that he makes in verse 2. He appeals not to the authority just of the king, but he says because of God's oath to him. Now some manuscripts don't say because of God's oath to him. Some say something different. They say uh, because of your oath to God. And while, yeah, maybe this will change uh, the interpretation of the text a little bit, a little bit of how we read it, it doesn't change the fact that the appeal to an authority is still to an authority that is greater than the king. It is still, still an appeal to God. It is still saying, either way, we're going to land in submission to this king, whether because we are in submission to God and he has commanded us to obey this king, or because this king, which is true, has been put here by God. And we might say, well, well, does this apply to us today? It seems like, well, he's, who is he talking to here? He's talking to, to Israel, right? This is the Old Testament. They were under the Old Covenant. And when we think about the fact that, that more than likely this was Solomon that wrote the book, we might think, okay, well, well you know, the kings of Israel, right, were, were placed there specifically by God. They were, they were ordained. They were chosen by, uh, by prophets. We see when the uh, uh, prophet Samuel goes to uh, to David and says, this is God's anointed, that he is anointed, you know, uh, they are chosen by God, right? So, well, maybe this applies then because of the fact that they were like the king of Israel, you know, God's chosen people, but does it really apply to us now? But the argument is obviously, yes, it still applies to us now. And I think Romans chapter 13 is extremely helpful. We would be remiss if we didn't look at what Romans says, look at what Paul says in Romans 13, just in verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 13, he says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. We see here Paul making essentially the same argument that the writer of Ecclesiastes is making, saying, hey, because of your submission to God, and because of the fact that the authorities have been placed there by God, you need to obey these authorities. This is a part of obedience to God, is obedience to earthly authorities. And just think about it for a second, and 
helps us understand a little bit more from our perspective of who is Paul writing to at the time. He's writing to persecution in Rome against the church. And yet this is the time, and this is the government under which Paul is writing to the church saying, submit to authorities. Submit to those who rule over you. Why does he say submit to them? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. He's saying God has ordained, God has willed that these people would be rulers over you. Therefore, obey them. Out of obedience to God, obey earthly rulers. This is important for us to consider. Especially in the political climate that we live in today. And regardless of, of who is in the White House, who is in Congress, who is on the Supreme Court, we are called to honor them and to obey them and to submit to them because they are there by the will of God. They are not there by accident. They have not gotten there somehow against God's will and, and it's somehow our responsibility to fight against them. No, they are there according to the will of God. It is ordained by God that they should be in that position. And and again, this is not me taking a political position. This is not me saying who is right, who is wrong. And I'm not up here saying anything about the, the morality or the, the good qualities of leadership of Donald Trump or whether or not he's a good president. But what I will say is, is the way Christians react or the way Christians somehow sometimes talk about, about President Trump, and, and I think we've all heard this, we hear Christians saying things like, uh, President Trump is God's candidate. God put President Trump in the White House. He is, he is God's chosen president for us. And they talk about him in these terms of almost like it's a, it's a prophetic president that we have right now. What President Trump has been chosen by God. He is God's chosen president. And I would say this to those same people, and I think many people would deny this who, who make that kind of, those kinds of claims, those kinds of arguments. I would say to them, you are absolutely right. President Donald Trump is God's chosen president. And before that, President Barack Obama was God's chosen president. And after him, whoever comes after will be God's chosen president. Because God has put earthly authorities in place. It is his will that they should rule over us. No one is accidentally put in authority by God. He never said oops whenever he put these, the Caesar... And, and rule over Rome. That's not what happened. And so it's important for us to understand this, that there are, there are times whenever for us as Christians, it may be easy to obey the governing authorities. It may be easy to, to submit to those over us. There will also be many times, in fact, a lot of times more than, than when it's easy, times when it's very hard for us to submit to authorities. Because we disagree with Almost everything they stand for. We disagree with them on almost every platform. And we may even think they are, they are immoral and don't deserve to be in that position. But that doesn't change the fact that we are called to submit to them and to show them honor that they are due. The writer of Ecclesiastes knows this. He knows that governments are evil. This is why he says in verse 9, man had power over man to his hurt. He is not ignorant to the fact that some governments are not very good governments, that some governments are corrupt. He, he's talked about this throughout Ecclesiastes. He, he knows. He knows what's wrong with the world. He's writing it down for us. 
And so his statements here to obey the king, to honor the king, to submit to the king, are not some sort of blanket statement to say all authorities are moral. To say all authorities are doing things that are perfectly right. That is not that either. We would be wrong to fall on that side of this coin either. But what he is saying is that whether or not we see that they are right, they are wrong, we are called to submit to them, to obey them no matter what. He is not ignorant of the fact that there is evil and corruption in government and politics and the authorities that we have over us. In fact, he addresses the problem of evil pretty directly as we continue going forward, which is point number two of my sermon, that, that there is a problem of evil that the writer addresses. Oftentimes when we think about those who fear God uh, the way we are commanded, we think that, that those who fear God, those who obey his commands, those who, who, who submit to him, rightly so, the way we're commanded, that somehow will lead to more blessings in this life. And, and we've talked about this before. We know that, that that is simply not always the case. There is not a, a direct, uh, unlimited, unqualified promise from God that, hey, if you fear me, life on this earth for you will be good. That's simply not the case. We will not always be blessed. Look at the global church, and you will see fear of God does not equal earthly blessing, period. That's just the way it is. And as we continue in this passage, we see the writer, he realizes this, and he laments over the injustice that's found in it. In verses 10 through 12, he says this, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not extinguished speedily. The heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. The, the writer here is lamenting over this reality that he sees to be true. He's writing and lamenting over this reality that we all know to be true as well. And he says, I see the evil being done. I see the wicked doing evil. Wicked things. And what I see is that they're not being punished for it. In fact, here on this earth, I see the wicked doing things and receiving the reward that should rightly go to the righteous. That's what he says in verse 14. He says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is a vanity. He is stating for us a truth that we all know to be true, that most of us have experienced in this life. Because most of us have experienced when we've been working at a job and we see someone else receive a promotion or, or a raise that we know that we deserve more than that, but they didn't deserve it. We see, we see singles who love the Lord and worship God and fear God who, who are still single and yet see other people who care little about living a life in the fear of the Lord and purity and, and honoring God, and yet they're the ones getting married. We see injustice all throughout the world. We see this person doesn't deserve what they're getting, but look, they're being blessed. They're living longer. We see this righteous person. It seems like they're dying sooner and their life is harder. What is this? This is injustice, the writer says. This this isn't right. I've seen this myself many times. There was one time in, in college. I was in this, this class. It was a performance studies class. And we, 
had online tests, which the teacher told us. This online test is not a group test. Test. This is not an open book test. Take it on your own time, by yourself, with no one else. For all of us who have been in college, we know that that did not happen. And there was a whole group of my of my peers, of my classmates, who all, you know, after class they got together and said, oh, let's come up with a time and all go take this thing together. And they all went and met and they took the, the test together. You have like three or four of them with their books open, like in their notebooks looking for the answers while one person took the, took the test. And, and then they realized which all they got wrong and they were telling the next person. And what ended up happening is this, this one classmate that I had who had barely showed up for class, hadn't put any work in, what honestly was probably going to fail the class, ended up getting A's on his test. And as I take this test on myself, I get so frustrated, I ended up with like a, like a C on these tests. And I, I, so frustrating. We know how frustrating that is to see those who are, who are doing things wrongly, who are doing things the wicked way, who are doing evil, being blessed, getting the reward that, that we think we deserve. And this is the reality in life. We've all heard it said, life is not fair. And guess what? It's not. Life simply is not fair. The preacher sees that. The preacher knows that. And he's lamenting over that. Sidestepping it. He knows it to be true. And that goes for Christians and non-Christians. Evil in the world. That is evil. That is wrong. And how do we respond to that? This is a question that is driven many a person away from the church. Many a person away from Christianity. This problem of evil. They will, they will maybe even grow up in the church, but as they get older, they see life's not fair. There's injustice being done to me, even though I'm doing the right things. Or I see people who are innocent around the world receiving injustice, evil, pain, suffering. And therefore, they, they reject Christ because of the suffering they see in this world. They come to the conclusion that there can't be a God because of this. If you begin any substantial study into apologetics, almost any book about the topic, about defending the faith, existence of God, and the argument goes something like this. It says, because there's evil in the world, there not exist a God who is all good and all powerful. By the way, that is the God we believe in. We believe in a God that is all-powerful, that is all-good, that, is, that is, is in charge of everything. That is the God we believe in. But they say because there's evil in the world, that God cannot exist. For either he would want to stop evil, but cannot, and therefore is not all-powerful, or he can stop evil and yet chooses not to, and therefore he's not all-good. This is the way the argument goes. And as we hear that, we might even think, it kind of makes sense. We do believe that God is both of those things. And it does seem like if he's not doing those things, then, then that's true. But in actuality, well, well, this argument is built upon a pretty big assumption. In fact, a pretty big false assumption that many people simply fail to see. And the assumption is this. People assume that because we can't see a good reason for the evil that's happening in the world, that there isn't a good reason for the evil that's happening in the world. They think that I'm looking at the evil, I see the evil, and as far as I can tell, there's no good reason this should be happening. None. Therefore, there isn't one. But as we think about this, 
first of all, any of us can, can probably think of a time when we think, that was a bad thing that happened. There was evil involved there, whether evil from a person being malicious or whether simply a, a product of the fall, a product of us living in a simple world. And we see, well, while that was a bad thing, down the road, given time maybe, we see how it did in fact lead to something good. We see maybe good come from something that we know was not good, but yet good can come from it. And if we can see certain examples of that and understand that just from, from our perspective, then recognize that the God that is above us, the God that is, is above all things, that is, is over creation, that is in charge of creation, he has a perspective that is much greater than ours, right? Much greater than ours. And therefore, it is acceptable, in fact, logical to assume that there could be a good reason for evil that we simply cannot see from our perspective. That's, that, that's what takes away this argument. Is that at the same time that you are willing to say that there is a God that is, that is great enough, big enough, to, to be angry at or blame for the problem of evil in the world and not doing anything about it, simultaneously you have, at that moment, a God that is big enough and great enough and high enough to have a reason for such evil to exist for good. To have a good reason for it to exist and us simply not know about it. His perspective is simply greater than ours. In fact, only the Christian worldview offers a solution to this problem. And here's where the argument is reversed and it's turned back upon the people who disagree with this. Is that, okay, say you reject the God of the Bible. Say you reject him. What about the problem of evil? The evil is still there. The evil still exists. You see it. I see it. What is the solution? What is to be made of all this evil? For them, I guess it's simply despair. Simply grab what you can while you can. But the Christian worldview says, yes, there is injustice in this life. Yes, there is evil being done in the world. But we have hope that one day all the injustices will be made right. That all the evil will be corrected. That the evildoer will be punished. That the righteous, those who fear God, will be rewarded. That all things will be made right. A restoration, a redemption that is coming in Christ. He has already begun this work. In Christ on the cross. So really the Christian worldview is the only one that has an answer for the problem of evil. At least any answer that gives hope or reason or, or coherence. We must have these answers. We must be able to answer these questions. And we, we won't always know the answer to, okay, how does this evil thing work out for good? Why does God allow it? Well, guess what? Most times we simply are not given an answer for that. We don't know. We don't always know God's ways. And that's why the preacher says, what he says in verse 17, what's he said? Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. He said man can't find it out. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In other words, there's simply things that God is doing that we will not know the answer to. We don't know how God is going to use every evil thing for, for, for our good and for his glory, but we know that he will. Romans 8 promises us that he will. But we know that God works together, God works all things together for good, 
but those who love him are called according to his purpose. All things will work to the good of us as believers, us as those who fear God, us as Christians, and to the glory of the God who created us. But there is something that we can know. We don't know all the answers, because in fact God's ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We won't always know the answers. But there is one thing that we can know that has much more lasting effects than these evil things we see here on this earth. And that is, point number three, that we as believers, those who fear God, are not to be pitied. And again, this is a part of why I titled my sermon, Yet I Know That It Will Be Well. And it's because of what the preacher says in the second half of verse 12. He says this. I'm going to start at the beginning of verse 12. Though a sinner does evil and a hundred times uh, evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, here we go. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God. This is something that the preacher says that he knows for certain. This is a true reality. He is, it is grounded. Notice how all throughout the book, if you remember, if you, if you go back and read Ecclesiastes, you will see over and over again the preacher saying, as he's, as he's talking about the evil that he is, that he's observed in the world, as he's talking about what it is to, to seek wisdom instead of folly, he says regularly, he says, I have seen. I have, I have seen that this is the case. This is evil. This is wrong. There is vanity in the world. I have seen that this is true. This is wisdom is better than folly. He said, says that over and over again. I have seen. I've, I've experienced. I, I know that this is. Or I, I, I've experienced that this is true. I've seen it. But here, what does the preacher not say? He doesn't say, I have seen. He's not really talking about some observation that he has made. He's not simply talking about uh, uh, something that maybe is true, maybe not. He's talking about something which he knows to be true. He says, yet I know. Something that he considers resolute, sure, true, based not on his own experience and his own knowledge, but on the promises of God. In fact, he basically is saying that this is true despite all of the things that I have seen, all of these things that I have named that are, that are evil, the injustice, the wickedness, the wickedness. He says it's true in spite of that. That's why he says this word, yet. He, said, he goes to all this evil. The evil prosper. The, the uh, ones who are righteous, they, they receive what the wicked deserve. But then he says in verse 12, yet I know. That in spite of the evil that we see, in spite of, of the injustice that happens, the righteous people receiving what the wicked deserve, the wicked receiving what the righteous deserve. He says, I know that all will be made right one day. I know that this is true. The Apostle Paul encourages, encourages us. Oh, excuse me. Uh, so the question is, how will it be made right? How will all things be made right? Why is it that the preacher knows this to be true? And the answer is found in Christ. Through Christ we have eternal life, eternal hope, eternal joy. In Him we know that this life is not the end for us. But that death has been defeated on the cross by Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're of all people most to be pitied. If, if our hope is in this life only, then we are more than anyone else to be pitied. 
But you notice point number three, and I stand by this truth, that we as Christians, those who fear God, those who believe in him, those who are in Christ, are not to be pitied. Consider this question. Do we have hope in this life only? Certainly not. Paul didn't think so. Neither did the writer of Ecclesiastes. But Paul goes on to make it clear that because Christ has been resurrected, we too will experience a resurrection like his. This is why we have hope. This is why it will be well for those who fear God. Because of the hope we have in Christ. Because of our coming resurrection. Because of the victory over death that we will have. Because then the injustices will be made right. Therefore, we are not to be pitied. Unlike the wicked who don't fear God, those who do fear God can know, regardless of how things go for us here on earth, that ultimately it will go well for us. But for those who do not fear God, they have only what common grace for God that they can experience here on this earth. That's it. Whatever fleeting momentary sense of, of happiness, sense of pleasure that they can experience here on this earth because there are things that, are, that can be experienced and, and be enjoyed and happiness can be found in that and pleasure can be found in that even if you're not a Christian for example, Christians can enjoy, Christians and non-Christians alike can enjoy a good stay right? both non-Christians and Christians alike can enjoy a relationship with a husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, son, daughter, we can find joy in that, pleasure in that. But for those who do not fear God, that's it for them. Whatever joys they can experience here on this earth is going to be the end of joy for them, the end of happiness. So for them, it is best to grab whatever fleeting, momentary sense of joy, happiness, pleasure they can experience right now, because that's all they're going to get. So the warning that he gives in verse 13 is important for us to see. Because although I've, I've been talking to us as saying, if we fear God, those of us who fear God, this is the reality for us. There was a warning given in verse 13. This is, the, this is the other side of the argument. This is the other side of the coin. It says this in 13. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. This is the warning that, that the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us. Is that for them, the, the outcome for those who don't fear God is death, is, is condemnation, is death, is an eternity of pain, suffering, and hell. Whatever may have gone their way here on this earth, even if they got what we felt like we deserved, what the righteous deserved, what those who did fear God deserved, what they will receive in hell is nothing but torment condemnation, pain, and suffering. The only thing that awaits them after the goodness of this life is that this doesn't have to be the case. No one has to stay there. If, if there's anyone who's, who's here today that doesn't fear God, if there's anyone who's here today that, that doesn't know what it means to live this kind of life, to, to fall on this side uh, of the line, because you have two people here. You have those who fear God and those who don't. What does it mean to fear God? Well, I can tell you this, that the fear of God starts with repentance and faith. It starts with understanding your sinfulness 
understanding who you are in light of a holy and righteous God, repenting from your sin, turning from your sin, making war against your sin, and putting your faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross for your salvation. He took the punishment for you. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He receives our punishment. We were, we were talking, if you were here on Thursday night at our growth group, uh, we had a great, great time of discussion. And, and Stan took us to uh, uh, Exodus chapter 34, where Jesus says that He will punish the wicked. He's talking about mercy. He's talking about forgiveness. He says, I will have mercy, but I will also punish evil. I will punish sin. It's not going to go unpunished. So, so the question has to be asked then, or, or the reality is true, rather, that either you will take on the punishment of your sin and spend an eternity in hell 